Welcome to the Burrito Kind of Guy, episode number 10. That's it. I reached 10 episodes. Um, thank you so much for uh, listening to this. If it's your first time, welcome to your first Burrito Kind of Guy podcast. This week, my guest is Jay Mas. Who's Jay Mas? Jay Mas uh, used to play in a band called Defeater. Uh, he's also an amazing sound engineer. So, in this podcast, we talk about um, songwriting, of course, we talk about creativity, but there's a lot of. Um, we talk about mixing, we talk about mastering, we talk about the studio experience, because he's a sound engineer, all right? This week, my sponsor is. Unbroken Minds Clothing. What is Unbroken Minds Clothing? Well, it's a clothing company that want to raise awareness on mental health issues. They want to remove the taboos attached to them and they want to share positive content. But above all, they want to advocate equality and respect in order to bring a little sweetness in a world that needs it more than ever. Unbroken Minds it's check that check them out check them out on instagram you should also check out their website unbrokenminds.clothing uh you can google it i'm sure you'll find it they've got t-shirts hoodies they've got tank tops long sleeves everything that you need all right and and since i'm doing free promotion for them uh they were nice enough to give uh me and to give you a promo code that's right you heard it i'm a real podcaster now i offer you a deal just for listening to this that's amazing so if you go on their website and you use the promo code burrito 15 burrito 15 uh, then you get 15% off that's great you should go on their website do it they're a cool brand they're from around here Woo! all right so um, I hope you're you have fun I hope you're gonna have a good week and let's go to that conversation that I had with Jay all right peace where were you born and what year were you born? <laughs> Shit, blown up my spot. I am 40. So I was, oh, oh man, I'll be 41 uh, next month. Uh, so I was born in uh, a city called Bremerton, Washington. It's um, right on the other side of the Puget Sound from Seattle. Um, it's like an old naval town. And uh, sort of my family ended up there because they were in the services and stuff. But they're still there now, but that's how we ended up there uh my last name is moss Um, somehow some way i'm originally from dutch heritage um and but yeah so i ended up in seattle and then i moved around a ton as a kid so i lived in northern california i also lived in la before i came out to boston um and i've called boston home for like 30 years now okay yeah so uh so you so 30 years so you i was 10 when i was 10 when i moved to boston yeah so what was it like growing up in Boston as a teenager? Was it uh, was it in Boston, Boston, or the, uh, no, Boston, like no, the... it definitely wasn't. So I lived in a little tiny town called Rockport, Massachusetts, and yeah, um, yeah and it's like my class was m- smaller than than most graduating classes, but it was a really small school. So my graduating class was thirty nine kids, um, and wow. Yeah, super small. Um, oh, I, I just I just Google mapped it, and it's uh I think it's it's on the north north side of Boston. I have um yeah I have a lot of friends that are from the North Shore, like PBD, Salem, oh, Beverly. Yeah. So we I, probably have the same friends because uh, yeah, that's those are my old stomping grounds. Um, and like I was in Beverly the other day, but yeah, I um I so I'm like a North Shore kid, more cool. more or less. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
and so Rockport was like kind of at the furthest extreme of that um, up like in the it's t technically an island um, and it's like the North Peninsula much smaller than Cape Cod of Massachusetts and it was a good place to live it was like classic case of good environment uh, safe environment and relatively intelligent people as a kid you think it's like a little boring but mm. it's probably for the better now that I'm a dad I'm like <laughs> oh, maybe a little boring is okay <laughs> Yeah. Uh, when, when did you start playing music? 12 is when I got my first guitar. Um, and I started private lessons at uh, 13 or 14. Um, and so I started learning. My mom was really good about that. She was like, if you're going to be making all that dang racket, then you should probably, it's probably for her own sanity, honestly, that I learned mm -hmm. how to play well. <laughs> um, yeah, so I got private instruction for years. And then um, I took all the theory courses I could at Rockport High, which, as you can imagine, was, was not a lot, but there were some. Um, and I was a music kid at school, so I went to Berkeley summer sessions, Berkeley College of Music, and I learned a lot there. And then everybody pushed me to go to Berkeley College of Music for like an undergrad degree. Um, I got accepted, and I went for, I tell this on like every podcast, but I went for like one day. Um, and I kind of looked around and I was like, you know what? I don't think that the financial investment is worth what I'm going to get out of this. I know that's a weird thing, but I think because I went to the summer sessions, I, I like had an idea of sort of what to expect with the instruction yeah. and like, and that sort of stuff. And so I was kind of like, I don't like, I love music. I love punk rock and skateboarding and I love being in a band and like, that's like my cup of tea, but I don't know that this path is going to take me in the direction that I want to go. So, um, I went up to the bursar's office and I was like, hey, and there was no one up there because everyone was doing orientation and stuff. And I was like, hey, I don't think I want to go to school here. And they were like, okay, what's your name? And I told them and they're like, so what do you want to do? I was like, well, can I get like my money back? And they're like, most of it. And I was like, great, huh. I'll do that. And um, so, <laughs> wow. so, yeah, so we got refunded and then I put we took that money and instead I applied for the next semester at a different college for computer science. Um, I've always like had like a really strong affinity for computers and it really affects my modern like workflow style, like with recording mm -hmm. even now. Um, I did not finish that degree because my bands kept going on tour and <laughs> I just kept getting in the van. And I, you know, it's funny. I have friends that are like, when they were at the crossroads of like, you know, musician dudes, punk dudes, but they're at the crossroads of like, am I gonna like finish college or am I gonna keep touring? You know, I've got friends who are like, I like, I can't, like I gotta finish college, which totally makes sense. That's probably advice I'd give to like almost anyone, mm -hmm. but just for me and where I landed and my lifestyle and stuff like, I would not trade for a second, like just kept getting in the van, kept immersing myself more and more into this world, into this culture. Um, yeah. I found my own path. Like you're obviously we're in my control room right now. You can see yeah. my studio. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, it worked out great. Yeah. In the, in the recording world, I don't know a lot of, um, audio engineer that have been to school in that, like right. it's mostly people who have learned from like being in a band and then starting to want to record. Yeah. Uh, it's completely what it is. Do, do you remember like, uh, when you first started to uh, when you first wanted to record and not just play the music like being part of the recording yeah, process i definitely do i was 19 um 
and my band just got signed to death wish records like right when death wish records started and they were like yeah you're going to the studio and dude i was like freaking out i was like what you know and it's like okay we went we recorded with kurt blue from converge mm -hmm. and you know he was at his space in somewhere west of boston at that time but i think it was like norwood um in this like industrial complex we, we walked in there you know and it was like looking back like it was a pretty modest space but dude it was full of fucking gear and kurt's like seven years older than me and he knew how everything worked and i was just like watching this process and watching like how it like was coming together i'm such a nerd i was like what is this i got so fascinated so then i had started a new band after that oh i did i, I started an emo band um we did uh, a full length with kurt and that was really fun and i think that like i got to spend a lot more time at God City when we did that. And then I was really watching how things worked. And that's when I got really interested. So <laughs> when I was getting ready to do my next recording, I was like 23 years old at that point, which is maybe like a little late to get started with something. But like, I was like 23, or maybe not, but like nowadays I feel like every like 17 year old in their MacBook is like an engineer, you know? But yeah. like, uh, um, I was like, okay. And so I had like a couple grand. I was like, I can give this to Kurt which probably isn't a bad idea, but I don't exactly know like if this project's going to be like a real band or like, I do want to record the, what it. What was the name of the band? Oh, that band was called November 5th, 1955. Um, which, oh. yeah, what's, which is the date. <laughs> well, that's the day that Doc Brown hit his head uh, in Back to the Future and he had um, the idea for the flux capacitor, thus making okay. time travel possible. Um, yeah. So Very that dirty. Was, I like it. <laughs> oh, dude. Oh, yeah. That band was like straight up like Mars Volta meets Shy Halud, like polyrhythmic, odd time signature nonsense all the time. Um, and I played guitar and did vocals. It was just like an exercise in flexing my musical ability. I don't know if it was necessarily an exercise <laughs> in writing great songs. <laughs> like, <laughs> um, wow. Yeah, so like, I, so I, I took the couple grand and I was like, you know what? I went to Guitar Center, like total noob status was like, yeah, the guy behind the counter must be an expert, you know, <laughs> and this was like, I, here's what I want to do, whatever. I walked out of there. I think it was called, it was a task game. I think it was called like a FW1884, I think. It was a firewire device. It had eight faders. The faders had motors. There was eight preamps. It was like digital console in like a singular package. And I was like, cool, I'll just put my microphones in here. This connects me to firewire. And I'm an engineer now. And like, so I just... <laughs> started recording and i think some of my early stuff came out good enough and i was so stoked about this like i just got totally hyper focused like totally obsessed um that just like all the bands i was playing shows with you know because we're we were in like that north shore community of just like bands like playing shows we all knew each other all the time you know i lived at the punk house i had the basement jay got recording gear like, and I was mm -hmm. like, let me record your band. Let me record your band. <laughs> like just one wow. after the other, you know? And, you know, it wasn't about like the money or whatever. At the time, I, um, I was a director of IT for a hot tub company of all things. And what? so like, <laughs> dude, it was my last real job. I worked at a hot wow. tub company. Yeah, I was like the, I was like head computer nerd at a hot tub company. And um, I know, it's <laughs> that's ridiculous. A, I know there's, that's a different podcast entirely. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> that's a silly job. <laughs> it is a silly job. It is very silly. And um, I'm glad I don't do that anymore, but yeah. And so, yeah, so like it wasn't about money. So I just like kept getting bands in for like a year and a half. And then 
this was probably leading into like 2006 or something at the time. And we are about to hit like the housing market crisis and stuff. And I think I've always said like the canary in the coal mine for like if the economy crash might be hot tub sales, because like the first thing you don't buy when there's like even like the tiniest little hint of like, of like, maybe the economy isn't what I think it is. It's like, maybe we won't buy that hot tub. So we, we like, <laughs> we went from, we went from fucking, wow. like, yeah, uh, selling like tons of hot tubs, like just boom, 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 boom. I'm scheduling stuff. I'm doing all this stuff. And then I was like, I really noticed a steep drop off over that year. And I was like, I'm really not selling that many hot tubs anymore. And I'm kind of looking around like, I don't, like, don't we have to sell a lot of hot tubs for this place to exist? <laughs> and one by one, I saw the CFO um, get laid off. And I was like, mm, I bet my days here are numbered. That, but I was like, kind of, okay, I got like a little severance. Um, and I was like, I was like, you know, maybe I don't ever get a job again. I, and so I had really low overhead. I had the punk house. I had enough gear to do some records. What was the name of the punk house? Was, was there a name for that? Yeah, yeah, there was. So my band, my emo band was called, oh, fuck. The, the truth of the matter is my old emo band used to be called Kobe Ty, named after the porn star, because it's a weird story. It was the dude from my primary band, like, got all butthurt that I started, like, this emo band side project. And just out of pure spite, I named it after his favorite porn star because wow. he was being like a little wiener about it and so <laughs> i was like all right i'll just i'll just ruin your favorite porn star for you too and then so <laughs> but then after the band like started playing more shows and stuff we were like we sh probably shouldn't be named kobe ty so we just became kobe um and that was okay but then next thing you know all of these like like sexual allegations come out about kobe bryant and then so uh, then I was just like, dude, I can't shit. fucking win. It's my own fault. But like, uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the house was called the Kobe house because um, okay. we were like the dudes from Kobe. When it started, it was like basically full of all of like that band. It, it had a million different roommates coming in mm -hmm. and out and stuff. But yeah, at the time, yeah. Going back to uh, maybe your teenage years, uh, what was it? What was the punk or the hardcore scene um, on the North Shore? Um, and, and like, do you remember your first show, the first show you went to, how old were you? Yeah, I was like 14 or 15. I was trying to go earlier, but like my mom was really nervous about the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, there was a, a spot in Gloucester, Massachusetts, and it was called art space. And just because I don't know, they misunderstood me. I was like, mom, like, I want to go to art space to see this, um, this punk band. At the time, they were called the Bumpin' Uglies, and they eventually turned into Boxing Water. If anyone knows those bands, yeah. huge throwback. But was it um, uh, was Jeff Rowe playing in that band? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah okay, yeah, Jeff, Jeff, yeah. Jeff Rose band. Yeah, totally. Oh, that's awesome. I love Jeff. So I was like, I wanted to go to the show at Arts Art Space, but my parents thought I said Arts Place. So they're like, my stepdad was like, "You're not going down to Arts Place," you know. He thought it was like a bar. <laughs> so. I, I didn't get to go right when I went to, but eventually I wore them down. Like I could take, we had something called the Cada bus. I think it's Cape and Transit Authority. And it would go from Rockport to Gloucester and I'd get dropped off downtown and I'd go to Art to Space. Uh, and that's where my first shows were. And I would see, yeah, I'd see Jeff's bands and stuff. He was like, he was like the king dude. Like he had all the cool oh, yeah. Gloucester bands, totally. And I was just like, wow. Hope my day, my bands could be as big as Jeff Rose bands one day, you know? <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
it ended up working, I think, at some point. Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you remember the first show that you have played with? What was the first band that you had? Because you mentioned a few bands, oh but the very first band. Yeah, it was bad, right? Yeah, I think it was called Special Blend, and um, which is like a terrible name. It's, it's like a snowboarding company. It's also a brand of tea, mm -hmm. but when you're 13 or whatever, you know, you're just like, mm. I, I think it was, we set up a show at my high school at Rockport High and like made a flyer and like we're playing in the school auditorium. We put on a punk show. And then after that, I would say the first like shows I played that <laughs> weren't at my school, um, I was probably like 14, 15. And those were, uh, those are at art space. Um, and then eventually, you know, we move on to like VFWs and we, there was a place in Salem, Massachusetts called um, the Salem Elks, which is gone now. But that was like, when I was late teens, early twenties, that place was like the spot. Like we, everyone went to the Elks. It was just big enough to have a few hundred people in there. Maybe if you really crammed it and it's it weird. It was this like cool North shore underground scene that I feel really grateful and lucky to have because it was very active and very vibrant. And there's like a lot of people invested in it. Awesome. Yeah. And uh, Defeater is your main, well, was your main band, yeah. right? Do you have a band right now or? Sort you... of. Um, it's like after Defeater, I wanted to get married, have a kid, did that. Um, and then now having, like being a dad, my, my kid's four, I'll be five in October. Um, it's like, I don't want to miss a minute. So yeah. like, yes. Uh, so I do a band with the original drummer Defeater um do you know the band verse that was on um yeah yeah so the singer of verse um and myself do it with um a couple friends of ours um this dude evan and, and my friend matt spence um and that band is called death of a nation um and it's cool it's it's exactly what you think like compositionally the music sounds very much like early defeater like the stuff that andy and i wrote like it's a more matured version we're older now but mm -hmm. it's still like andy's a nasty drummer and my like guitar style is I like can't not sound like me. So, you know, it's like, it's that, but like um, Quinn, our vocalist from Verse, like brings it to this other level. Cause I've always thought, cause I recorded Verse Aggression and I always thought like he was like one of my favorite vocalists in all of hardcore. So when it came time to be like, all right, well, if I'm going to do something, you know, mm -hmm. I, I asked and <laughs> I remember his response was, I thought you would never ask. And I was like, oh, good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, nice and uh the theater started in 2008 yeah. um when you before before that your other bands what was your main goal like of playing in bands was it just like to have fun with your friends or did you have any um intentions to maybe make a little bit of money out of this or was it like totally, before yeah. the theater no dude i've since i started bands like in my late teens or whatever I like, I've always been like the empire builder, you know, I'm always like, like putting the pieces together and be like, we're gonna play with this in, we're gonna talk to this guy and try to get on this label. And like, we've like yeah. always like, like trying to like mastermind the plan and then execute that. And um, so I would say, ironically, like I was thought I was going to, and I was like trying to make my bands as big as possible the whole time. This didn't really work that well. Mm -hmm. And then I got a little bit older and I think my association with this community and the fact that I was becoming the engineer that was recording a lot of records for death wish and a lot of records for revelation and bridge nine and to some extent equal vision. And like, is that it was like, so when I started defeater, 
that was actually the point where I was like, I do, I don't even know if I fucking care anymore. I've been like slogging away at this for so long. Mm-hmm. We, we recorded travels. And then of course, immediately uh, that band does pretty well. And then we start getting like calls from a whole bunch of labels. And uh, yeah, we the first, the first defeater album, uh, did it come out on epitaph or was it? No, 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 uh, no. Like there's only been two defeater records on epitaph. Uh, yeah. I was on the first one that was on epitaph and then the dudes put out, um, a new one, I think like last year, but before that, so we had a CD release of this record called travels, which is our first record. Um, that was on top shelf records. Um, and Seth and Kevin run that great dudes. And then Seth actually worked at bridge nine. So it was like also a pretty easy transition. I was like recording records for Chris at bridge nine. Mm-hmm. Seth worked there. Like I, I was like bridge nine is located in Peabody. So I'd be like popping in with coffees and stuff and hanging out. And so it was a pretty natural transition when Chris or Carl Hensel was a label manager at the time was like, we want to license the vinyl version of travels and then maybe um, also write you guys a deal. Um, so the, the vast majority of the band existed on bridge nine. Um, and ironically, like the idea for the band and the concept, I think it's got kind of like, um, like, I don't know exactly where it's going now, but the original concept was like, it was really only going to be four LPs. And it was about this family and the whole, it's not that each record is a concept, but actually the band itself is a concept in each like record is like a window into these events from different perspectives trying to like mostly like paint it with shades of gray so that like you like yeah you like almost the idea is that you would empathize with the humanity of those characters even though like the way that they were portrayed through the lens of somebody else would like might have you demonize them on like a previous record but then when you see things like through like their perspective like you gain an understanding of like why they would make the decisions they did and do the things they did um because wow. i okay. feel that's like very, that's very complex i like it thank you yeah i uh were you, I, just, i think yeah i think i read that you were the main songwriter in defeater back when, yeah when, was totally. it, it's okay cool yeah, yeah. um it's, yeah i so i just feel like for what it's worth like humanity sort of lacks a little bit of patience and compassion especially nowadays and oh yeah um i like really enjoy the concept of empathy and non-divisive rhetoric and trying to uh i don't know i'm not trying to be cheesy here but like just like trying to see where someone's coming from and like empathize with their pain before just like yeah before you just get all like self-righteous and be like he fucked me over you know <laughs> like <laughs> I, i i feel you with this i feel like uh, nowadays i am Personally, when I see a conflict, um, um, instead of taking one side of the conflict, I usually now, I try to think of how both people feel and yeah. why why one of the person did this and why the other did that. Yeah. And uh, yeah, usually communication, empathy, and uh, respect. Yeah. If, if there was more of that in, the, in our world, it would be, um, it would be dope. <laughs> it would be great. I would love that. Yeah, I mean, even with interpersonal relationships are, are so tricky. And it is really like one of the most difficult but important things I think we as people can learn um, in this life is having the patience and like sort of like the zoomed out, like greater outlook to try to find ways to empathy with people who are, at least in our opinion, causing us pain in the moment. It's really, really hard to like find a pathway towards empathy when you're 
personally experiencing pain. And yeah. I think like the inability to do that, which it's not, re- it's not surprising that that's difficult to do. Of course, that's difficult to do. But damn, like the reward for being able to do that is like the best, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, especially in uh, in in America, I feel like uh, late lately there's been a few uh, there's there's a few things that uh, like um, as you know like I'm I'm in, from Montreal and yeah. uh, the like it's 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 a bit different here, but there's still like a, there's always like social tensions. Uh, but when we look at America, usually we're like, oh shit, that's like right our neighbors and it's and messed crazy. up. Yeah, 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 it's messed yeah. up. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah, we're like we're the neighbors in the upstairs apartment that are just like constantly having a domestic dispute. You have to hear all about all the time, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a perfect, perfect analogy yeah. for this. Yeah, yeah. I, lo- I love it. Yeah, uh, and, and, saying, and guys, get it together. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you left uh, the band. We left the feeder in 2015. Yeah. Uh, do you mind talking about why? Because like. I, I, you're probably tired of talking about this and I've only found out that it was because of personal and creative differences. And I thought, hmm, yeah. that's pretty large. <laughs> that's yeah. a, could be anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, it was like, um, it, I would say like that band, it was, it's like, like so many like things that do well and successful. Like, um, you know, when you have really like talented people, a lot of times like, The, their they have their opinions they have their outlook defeater became like really important to everyone in the band and i think that when you are not aligned with what um like i don't want to give away too many details because i just don't want to like i don't want to make it harsh or weird but it's just like when you're yeah. not aligned with like we're all in the same car the car can only go to one place right like mm-hmm. we, you, you have to pick a destination and when not everybody in the car wants to go to the same place that becomes like a problem because there's not two cars you know <laughs> you, yeah. like you just like you're you're gonna go somewhere and so like then of course there's conflict and, and on top of it like i don't know how much you're touring or if you've done that but like we were on the road at that point like six months out of the year um mm-hmm. and it's a lot of traveling and um it, you know it's just like people can breathe wrong, you know, at that point yeah. when you're oh, just yeah. like around people too much and you're just like, I gotta go for a walk. I gotta go for a walk, you know, just yeah. like, ah, oh, you know, like just stuff like that, like little irritations that add up every day. It's just like the most classic common stuff. And then on the personal side of things, like I was, the other thing about touring so much is like, I was married before and it has like a really difficult impact on your social relationships back home, mm-hmm. particularly like, you know, I got married and we weren't touring quite so much, but over the course of my marriage, like I was already doing defeater when I got married, but right around the time I got married is when things really started to kick off. So like probably the expectation that um, my wife had, and that honestly I had too, for how much energy and time this was going to take um, was lower than what the reality became. And so that was all well and good while everything was trending upwards, but the cost benefit analysis starts to change when like, you know, the band, like, you know, just candidly like plateaued and we like, we could see it in the shows. We could see it in like, we were supposed to sign an epitaph and sell, you know, whatever the number we talked about was X amount of records. Um, And 
that was going to oh, be wait, more. Wait, wait. Uh, so when you're w- when you signed to Epitaph, they were giving you a uh, projections of how many records they thought they could sell. Sort of. So when you're like doing, <laughs> like when you're putting out records, typically if your band is doing well, it's like, well, this is what we saw. It was like every record was more. And then like, there was like some big jumps on like our first week sales. And our biggest jump was on this record called Letters Home, which was the last record that we did with um, Bridge Nine. Um, after that, we were free agents and then we could entertain conversations about where we were going to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ended up signing to Epitaph, which is like for us a total dream. Yeah. And um, and Brett is awesome over there. And like, we were really excited. I don't know if we put out the record too fast. I don't know if things were just cooling down. There's a lot of different reasons, things like who knows, mm-hmm. but like, it's safe to say like, we didn't even come close to meeting our first week projections. So like, not only like, we thought we were going to sell more than last time. We sold like a fifth of what we sold last time our first week. So okay. we were like, so I remember like our manager calls and he tells me the numbers. He's like being all sheepish kind of, because I think he's like worried. And, and I just started laughing when I was walking around Denver looking for a coffee. And I just was like laughing. And I was like, okay. I was like, I, I, I don't want to like jump the gun here, but like those don't seem like the type of numbers for like a full-time touring band. Those seem yeah. like the type of numbers for like, let's have fun. Let's go do that fest. And like, let's go, like, this is an entity and we can make art and that's cool, but we can see what happens here, but it doesn't seem to me like those numbers are going to like hold Mm -hmm. up the expectations we've been having. Okay, Um, I understand that. Yeah. Yeah. So that was happening. So that causes tensions. Like when you have like all of this energy going into this thing, you have these expectations, you're frustrated that maybe they're not being met. Maybe somebody's getting opportunities that you want. I mean, there's only so many tours. Like there's just like all of this stuff is going on, right? Mm-hmm. It, it, it's a really good lesson in, in, in proper expectation setting and in patience and in like rationality. <laughs> and mm-hmm. so, but that is hard to maintain when like you're throwing like your whole life into this thing. And then we went on this tour, um, we went on tour with counterparts and then right after that like a month later we went to do like this australian uk europe uh middle east russia like full whole thing it was gonna take eight weeks and over the course of that tour uh little did i know like my wife she was just like done and so like i was super stressed out so i was like i'm gonna fly home to try to like see what's going on with my marriage she basically said like don't bother so i was like cool um and so i was just on the road just like self-medicating and fucking hanging oh, out fuck. yeah oh, just no. like oh that's boy. the fucking worst oh no because i i have a band it's called lost love it's not a big band we the i i counted we're releasing our fourth album in the this fall and uh, we only sold a thousand records of all the first three, so it's not. <laughs> yeah, sure. uh, but and 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 uh, it happened, like on the road. I've seen uh, bandmates and myself when something happens at home, and you're like, "Oh shit!" Like, yep. Um, my grandfather died, or "Oh shit!" Mm-hmm. My girlfriend's pissed at me because we're far, <laughs> for, 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 far from. Yeah. Or um. Fuck the last, the last, the last thing that uh, I remember that happened to me was uh, I, I was at Fest in, in Florida and uh, my dog got sick, 
and uh-huh. like super sick to the point that my girlfriend thought that the dog was going to die and i was like oh sh- sh- fuck should i fly back and and to me right. and 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 since it's just a just a quote unquote a dog i know a lot of people would have been like wait you're going to fly back for your do- dying dog and i'm like well that's your dog it's, dude yeah it's like yeah. <laughs> it's like my kid like it's 100% but yeah wow so and you kept on doing that tour even though i didn't really have anywhere to go you know uh I, yeah so i just i kept doing the tour but as i mean dude like i'm at you're overseas your wife says like don't come home um and any for what i've seen with basically all my friends and i am no different like when someone goes through a breakup there's like usually a solid like six months of crazy period where you're just like on this weird roller coaster of emotions, mm-hmm. you're not behaving like yourself. Like you know that you're gonna come back to fucking Jesus eventually, and you're gonna you're gonna wake up and be like, okay, like whoa, like stop being a madman. But like you're just like, especially when I couldn't get info, I didn't know what was going on. Like ultimately, I ended up coming home. She was gone. The dog was gone. All the shit was out of the house, and I was just like walked into like this like shell of like what my life was. Dude, it felt like. Like I was on the show Lost. Like I got on the airplane oh. and I had all life. You know what I mean? And then I got off the airplane, no more life. You know, <laughs> I was mm-hmm. like, I was like, oh my God. So like that was just going on and so it was really uh, challenging. So it's not the, this woman where we're talking about is not the uh, mother of your kid, is it? No, 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 no. no oh, okay, okay, okay. So yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. And so then, um, yeah, we did another tour and stuff and just, I don't know. Like I, yeah. I just, we, we just weren't, weren't vibing, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, l- listen, I like, <laughs> like I said earlier in the podcast, like I try to have patience, empathy and perspective for, mm-hmm. for everyone. So it, I, I do, I do want to maintain that for sure. Um, it was a great lesson in, I think some experience stuff that like most people per hopefully like don't have to go through, but like, but if you do go through it, like, man, like in, you know, you can wake up one day and like be a normal person again, like you, the perspective and education you get from that is actually great. It yeah. just, man, the pain along the way sucks. <laughs> Speaking yeah. of pain, uh, we're going to talk about songwriting. Do you remember the first song you have written, the first song ever, and how yes. you got into the process of songwriting yep um <clears throat> so i just got my guitar i knew i owned oh, my friends they wanted to like start a band i was in I was either in the end of middle school or my first year of high school and our principal got fired our principal left something happened no more principal so they got a temporary principal his name was mr swekla and he he was an asshole and so <laughs> I was probably 13, you know, and um, so the first song I wrote was called Swekla, and I don't remember the words. I just remember I learned power chords, like very Kurt Cobain style, and I just made like a shape on my guitar, and I could only like, like, you know, like the box shape, you know, Mm -hmm. type one, drop down, type two, move up a whole step, type two, then same fret, type one, you make that little like, yeah major scale box there and um and so <laughs> but i could only sing and strum at that point when i was down strumming so like the song would be like 
all like jangly and stuff. Yeah. But then every verse was just because like I was 13 and that I could only sing. I probably like sing like sing the words as I strum down. I sing the words. You know, like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I uh, I have a friend who um who knows how to play guitar just a little bit and uh he likes to sing sometimes when he plays guitar and, and he's not very good at it. But every time it's always the same picking, and he's like. He's been telling me like, how do you, how do you sing and play guitar at the same time? How do you like synchronize like your, your both of your hands right. doing different things and your voice doing something totally different than what's mm -hmm. in your hands? And I can never find the answer to that. I'm like, I don't know. You practice and at some point you get it. I, I, <clears throat> yeah. It's, <laughs> no, it's it's true. I mean, that's like I used to watch my drummers do like all these different rudiments, and I would be like no way in hell am I ever going to be able to like do that. But then, you know, over a decade of touring later, I, all I do is drive. So whatever song was on, same thing. I just had to practice. So on the steering wheel, I taught myself double strokes, like, you know, and, uh, and so like, I, I couldn't do it very well. Like, and I'd always have to revert back to singles, like, no, 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 no. And then now I am a steering wheel double stroke machine, dude. I could double stroke roll nice. to any tempo on my steering wheel. Now I put drumsticks in my hand. It's a completely different situation. Yeah. Steering wheel, I got it. Nice. <laughs> yeah. What's your what's your songwriting process? Um, usually do you um, do you write the lyrics first? Do you think of a melody? How how does it work? No, I've always thought of guitar and songwriting, especially around the time I was getting into theater and stuff. It's like like I am the foundation layer i'm like i i'm very much like i think in like sounds so like silly but i think in like textures and colors and dynamics and so like it's more about like mm, dynamic intensity and adding tension layers mm -hmm. like almost more like scoring in a way and really like i just yeah i just think of the layers i think of like the tensions and the tempos and the impactfulness and all that stuff and like find myself like forming a lot of strange chords that like I'm really leaning on the bass guitar to like hold down whatever the root note is because like I'm gonna want to like suss out like a bunch of suspensions and like arpeggiate pick through them like but that's mostly like weave this like sort of like minor scale harp tapestry over what's probably a driving like drum and bass line you know sometimes we'll go right to basics and we'll play like you know root fifth type stuff but um a lot a lot of the time it's uh augmented chords you know a lot of like tension elements inside of the chords i play with a fucking ton of vibrato because I, I like the like type of thing you can yep. get going on too so nice. yeah i like to play the guitar really dynamically like like in that way both left hand right hand with the feeder did you write the lyrics or um early on early on a bit but not even then it was um like really the minority share in a big way it was uh we would talk concepts a lot right and so like i think i came up with the concept and then we ended up setting it in like the 1940s and stuff like that uh, that part wasn't my idea but the idea of like it being this concept and how the records would sort of like intertwine with one another was mm -hmm. my idea yeah um so yeah so no like again i so again big picture stuff like the concepts and the structures and then like obviously the, the performances here in the studio and stuff and yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd work hand in hand with the drummer to get those tensions right as well because like that like the dynamics you know like really really come from 
a drummer, like guitars can be dynamic, but we usually like, as we're being dynamic, we're, we're staging from like cleans into distortions, which are more compressed. So it's like, you know, like you're losing some of your dynamics as you're gaining intensity because the distortion starts to compress the, like the dynamic range of your right hand. So you have to like deal that with like, you know, like dynamic, like single stroke crescendo rolls that come up and then I get like a half time or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's how I think of it. Do yeah. you, uh, do you, um, do you plan a specific moment for songwriting? Like these days, I bet you do more uh, mixing, recording, mastering yeah. uh, songs, yeah. uh, but do you plan in your week? Like, Oh, I should like write just music. <laughs> I should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should. I never have. Um, I've always written for a reason, if that makes sense. Yeah, so like, yeah. I think Defeater's biggest record is probably this record, Empty Days and Sleepless Nights. Um, I think that's the one that I was listening to. It came out in like 10 years ago. In 2011, yeah. Um, and so when Andy and I, Andy and I started recording that record um, September 10th, which was my birthday, my 30th birthday, he came down. I think he came downstairs with some beads that said 30, uh, a crown and a can of four loco. And we, uh, <laughs> and so. Wow, that's we, glorious. Yeah, it was great. So we started recording that record on my birthday. Having said that, we also started writing that record on my birthday. So we didn't, we just set up all the mics and oh, we wow. wrote as we, yeah. And that's how he and I like always do it. Um, we, we'll just refine and iterate into the recording and it's great. Mm -hmm. And when we can hit space bar and the whole thing goes through and we, the entire time we feel like the peaks and valleys are right. Like the intensity is right. Fucking mm -hmm. let's write another one. You know, do you know, do you know why this album is not on Spotify? It is. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Empty days and sleepless nights. Oh, wait, wait a second. I need to check. Cause I was, uh, I was looking for it the other day and I was like, huh. If it's not, it's, it's news. It definitely was. See, discography. It's not in the discography, but wait. Hold on. Let me search. Uh, the song I Don't Mind is, is it, okay, that's that's something that I was also going to ask you. I Don't Mind is an acoustic, an acoustic song, right? Yeah. Yep. And it's the most listened to by far song on <laughs> yeah, Spotify. Do you yeah. have any, do you know why? <laughs> yeah, because that's just what happens. Talk to Rise Against about Swing Life Away. It's oh, the yeah. same fucking thing, you know? Okay, I mean? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's just what happens. But yeah, the record's on there. You can probably see it. Oh, yeah, okay. It's yeah. I, just, I just didn't find it uh, when I was just uh, in the band's uh, thing. Oh, right, yeah, cool. I don't know. Yeah, if you type empty days into the search bar, you should probably find right. it. Um, um, cool. To, uh, yeah. This album, I listen. That's like I'm not. Uh, I'm not like a huge Defeater fan. I'm not. I'm not a huge hardcore fan in general. But yeah. uh, I know this album in particular because ten years ago, uh, I was 19 and I just started touring with bands, and I did a tour, a cross Canadian tour with the band as a as a roadie. I was just there to drink beers and have fun. Yeah. And uh, there was a band from my hometown that was very much inspired by Defeater. Oh, cool. um and uh they were gonna go on a tour and they asked me like hey you've been on the road do you want to come with us and i was like yeah. yeah sure and they they got me into all these bands that sounded cool. like from that, that genre era of and, uh, yeah. The, yeah yeah and uh i remember they, they have they had one song that really sounded like the um defeater song that was basically just a copy of of your song and i was like 
oh all right uh, that's cool that's cool but uh that's yeah flattering. yeah yeah so um yeah i'm gonna send them a messaging that i had a conversation with you and they're gonna be like mm -hmm. what <laughs> <laughs> cool. they don't they don't Tell play music anymore uh, sellouts dude yeah, want to get jobs yeah <laughs> do uh do you did you work with a producer um no, no with no, the no. feeder I, no i i so i i produced everything so i we did everything from the conception in my mind like it's all like it's all the same process you know it's like usually andy come down and um we'd be in the studio and then i'd start playing something i thought he'd start playing something on his knees or we'd be in the room playing on the kit mm -hmm. and yeah so in terms of we never had an external producer uh, okay. while i was in the band and and but you act as a producer for yeah. for many different bands um what's how do you see your job as a producer when uh, a band reach out and they're like hey we want you to record and produce because it's two separate things right it's true sure. yeah um how, what's your vision of a good producer um i think a good a good producer you know what i don't think there's a single answer for that because yeah. i've produced bands um where me being a producer i'm going to call these guys out there's one time i've said this on other podcasts if they hear this they're just going to put their heads in their hands and cry but let this band flew me to australia um to produce an lp for them um we we're in brisbane and we rented like a million dollar studio to do the drums in and like cool I showed up and we're supposed to do an LP and they had like a few songs and a bunch of riffs and they had like, we didn't have a record and we were supposed to do a few days of pre-pro and then go to the studio. And I was just like, Oh my God. And then, so the demos were all um, like MIDI drums. So I, I turned around in my chair and I talked to the drummer and I was like, so I've noticed in the MIDI, this is kind of weird. Like when you play this, Like when you play this, like, how do you like, what's the sticking like for this part? You know? And he goes, oh yeah, no, I've never, I haven't played any of these songs on my kit yet. And I was like, boys. <laughs> oh no. Yeah. So like, imagine you fucking fly me literally across the world and um, yeah. show up and you didn't do your homework. So good. yeah. Were you, my job. Yeah, but the there, good news is you were going to get paid either way i guess but yeah i mean yes that part is fine the money and, is what and, it is and you're in brisbane which is a great place to be like totally yeah totally <laughs> i totally agree but like really you know i'm the real reason i'm there is i want to make something cool yeah definitely um, yeah yeah <laughs> yeah <clears throat> like otherwise i just hang and be at my house a, with my wife is it a famous yeah. band or is it a like it all right i'll call them out there the, the record came out awesome you check it out because it'll actually links the story they're called our past days Uh, yeah. hour past days yeah um and they did like they did some like shows with the wonder years and stuff like that um in in australia I, they never turned it outside of australia as far as i know um but <laughs> so anyway um in that event my job as a producer was really intense you know it was like basically writing songs with them like from the ground yeah. up quickly fortunately I, i'm experienced in doing that and writing songs really fast and working with all the dudes and like my job as a producer there is again kind of like what i did for defeater which is like setting themes and motifs and effects and things that tie things together and, and make them their own while mm -hmm. also tying into like a greater vision a greater whole um so that was 
in one way the, the guys are like the best dudes so like i love them it's all good but like so but in like one way you know you could see like yourself showing up and being really frustrated and pissed off because it wasn't like the, what was supposed to happen didn't happen but in a different way you could show up and be like let's go here we go oh boy and so you just dig in with the guys you actually probably form an even stronger relationship because now you got to do this thing together and you yeah. have to do it right now um mm -hmm. and yeah some long days and a lot of hard work and i think we made like a super cool record it's like really good i think awesome. um yeah and you can like it's funny like in the i think it's the first song on that record you can almost like there's a switch about halfway through and you can hear like where it modulates to minor and all of a sudden it's like oh jay jay this is where jay kicks in <laughs> yeah the band is called our past days yeah okay yeah and the album is keep safe yeah okay amazing i got it there all right yeah <laughs> i'll listen to that um yeah. what was it like to produce um Kali Mazi? you produced two albums by them uh dude it's the best i mean <clears throat> it's not every day uh i'm gonna inflate these egos of theirs actually they're like not an egotistical band at all which makes yeah. it the best but like uh uh yeah it's, it's not every day i get to work with uh bands that are that good that i hope that how good they are um people really start finding out about them. I hope that this new record, uh, I'm actually flying out to Chicago in a couple of weeks to go to their uh, record release. Awesome. Um, I hope, yeah, I hope that this new record um, really, hope it gets what it deserves because it's yeah. so fucking good. And mm -hmm. um, working with really, like speaking of a strong visionary songwriter, hyper intelligent dude, like, like you know, Sam's songwriting skills are like mm -hmm. in incredible. Um, You know, like not many records that I've produced, I've had to like wipe tears away and ask for another take. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, he's like sitting like literally right here. He was did vocals right where behind me on that microphone and like legitimately just like, dude was fucking me up with his delivery and the context and yeah. just like the charisma and all this. And I'm just like, all right, that's pretty good. Uh, you know, <laughs> Yeah, I already yeah. mentioned it in the previous episode when I had Sam on the podcast. Uh, but like when I um, I met um, Kelly Mazzi back when they were called The Howl, and we were on tour with my band and we played a show in New Jersey together. And when I saw them live, I was like, "This is the best uh, quote unquote underground band that I've seen ever." Like on on the road, usually uh, when you play with like when you play these like shitty dive bars all over the U.S and you play with different bands from everywhere, like you get sometimes like decent bands that you play with. Um, and and when, when I saw them, I was like, holy shit, if they don't make it, like what the fuck? That's how I feel too. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Then, I don't, then I don't know how anything works. If they don't make it, then I don't understand anything. <laughs> you know? Yeah. 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 Uh, <clears throat> and and uh, I seen I seen that you worked with Make Do and Man. What did you do with yeah. them? Did you record their uh, last album? So I did. Yeah, I did that one. Um, okay. it, I also did uh, a record for them called End Measured Mile. Um, you it, recorded End Measured Mile. Yeah. Oh wow. Okay. That one. Yeah. Wait. Okay. So maybe you can give me an answer for that because I've been um, a fan and I've played shows with them when they played um, in Quebec. Cool. Um, 
And uh, I've always wondered because and Measured Mile and their latest album, which was called Don't Be, Don't Be Long. Long, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, to me, sounded like two different things. Totally. To me, it felt like it was not recorded by the same person. Because yeah. So yeah. that um, and Measured Mile, I recorded and produced, but I think Matt Bayless mixed that one. Um, and then Don't Be Long, I did the mixing on as well. But I think like also my mixing style like evolves. And I think by the, mm -hmm. there was enough time in between those two records because they have a record in between those two as well, where I think they had definitely evolved as a band as well too. We we're doing different stuff. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and I have, I have the list of bands that you've worked with and I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> um, like I said, many many entries on Discog that I've seen, that I've seen. Uh, you cool. mentioned you mentioned uh, Kurt Ballou. Uh Did you did I understand correctly that you worked with him when you started? Um, yeah, recording. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, he was he was really influential. Like, not only was probably like the catalyst for me to be like, this might be something I'd want to do. This is cool. Also, um, I mean, God bless his heart. You know, I'd fucking message him all the time like listen to my mix listen to my mix you know whatever and uh he'd give me like he's a really bright dude he'd give me very <laughs> he's also a very concise dude you know like he'd yeah. give me like these like too much 500 hertz you know like suddenly like, okay oh yeah <laughs> and, like, wow. yeah um but i started sending stuff and i think it got to the point where um my stuff got good enough that he asked me to track uh bass and vocals for a record he was doing um for i think face down records is this record called seventh the bank was called seventh star um and they were like a, i think a florida like christian hardcore band and i was like yeah yeah whatever you need like i'll do i'll do whatever and so we split the the record between god city and um where i was recording at the time it's basically just a punk house um and that was cool and so after that we worked on a few more things together um I got keys to God city and um, yeah, Kurt rules. Um, and that was, that was really cool for me. Like when you're, you get to like get in there and like see decisions being made and like see the difference and see the studio yeah. etiquette and like, and like be able to like ask later about like, Hey, I noticed, you know, this or that, like whatever. But I remember like when I first walked in there and I wanted to start recording at God city, he took a little like uh, clock radio and he plugged it into the wall in the live room. <clears throat> now, my setup was like plug microphone into because that was like so early for me right like plug microphone directly into like computerized interface hit record call it a day his is all wired up through patch bays and like wall boxes and like all this stuff so i hadn't done signal flow on that level yet so like he just put his like like radio like in there and he goes record that and i was like Okay, now I'm gonna start with a microphone, and uh, yeah, wow. and so I had to like he just like watched me. I had to work my way through the whole signal chain, which was weird. Like I didn't know where this cable came out over here, and like, yeah, yeah. the patch bay there, and like you know, like I had never used a patch bay before. So he was like, you know, this is called the tie line, and like all of this different stuff. And so uh -huh. I was like, okay, okay. Ultimately, all you're doing is you're playing that like iPad game, where's my water or whatever, where you're just like making the water flow. To the place it's supposed to go yeah. but you don't get to see everything you know that's going through the walls and coming out over here and then it comes out over there and like so you gotta mm -hmm. figure it out 
-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in uh, recording in, in general. Uh, I've I've been recording my own songs for a long time now, very DIY at home. Yeah. But every time I'm in a real studio, I'm always like impressed by all every everything that's there. And last time I, I was in studio, I actually asked the guy like, "Can you tell me what are these for?" And like it was all like a bunch of compressors and and mm -hmm. stuff that I don't know. And he was like, "Yeah, sure." And in like one minute, he was like. This is uh, this is that, and it does this, and uh, this is that, and then very quickly. And at the end, I was like, "All right, I I, I want to know everything about all yep. of this." I'm like, so when when yeah. I found out about your YouTube videos, I was like, "Oh, okay, I, I guess I'm gonna follow that because it's there's a lot of cool. interesting stuff." Yeah. Now we're at the part where we're gonna talk about creativity. Um, what is creativity to you? Like, if you had to describe the concept of creativity to someone who's never heard about creativity what how would you describe it well i guess it's genesis it's creating right so i think when we say the word creativity we're usually talking about what we refer to as artistic creativity and i think we consider something artistically creative when it represents something that's difficult to quantify because it represents like some some sort of emotional subset so <clears throat> you're like taking a feeling and trying to use tools, be it instruments or your voice or a painting or a book, like and you're trying to use different medium to make that feeling occur in someone else. It's like a game of like emotional telephone. And so, yeah, so yeah. So you're in, in whatever tools, like you gravitate, towards probably can be used there's you know there's poets right um there's poets there's painters there's musicians so um it, and then there's like film you know so much stuff video games right like whatever yeah. i mean that one takes a, a big team but um but like whatever you're doing hopefully i mean even like if you take like a, a gaming studio right was fucking blizzard hires a thousand people to work on this game and whatever there needs to be a creative director There needs to be someone who's got the the emotional like the concept down and like yes he needs an army or she uh or they need an army but <laughs> very 2021 to me jason uh yep. and so yeah, um they need an army uh that's fine but that doesn't make them not the creative leader and nothing can replace the original conception of that like emotional product that we're trying to build that is the destination that's like that person needs to drive and if he needs if he's if he's steering a ship and he needs motherfuckers to be fucking rowing you know mm -hmm. whatever but like he's steering the ship they they are steering the ship yeah. um yeah and so that's why i think uh, create yeah. creativity is that's how it translates to me um and for me because i just got into guitar when i was 12 that was my that's my vessel you know Oh, very, very interesting uh, definition. Do you think everyone has a creative potential or do you think that some people are just not creative people? Yeah, this would be a polarizing answer. Um, I think... Because, <sighs> I mean, you recorded tons of bands. You probably have seen um, a bassist in a band just playing what he's been told to play and not mm -hmm. being very creative with it. So you probably... And often not being very good. <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah um yeah yeah i see it all the time um the, 
that's different. Like that person is probably there because of the community mm -hmm. um, and, and for different reasons and different experiences, you know, that that person probably wouldn't want to fill that role if they were the type of person who wants to, is like overtly creative, you know? Yeah. Um, like that person might, because I know dudes in bands who are just like, oh, that's the songwriter. I'm just happy to be here, you know? And that's cool too. I mean, there's a lot less pressure that way. It can be a ton of fun. Mm -hmm. um, but if that particular person was a really strong songwriter and had this like, these like visions and ideas that they just felt like I need to make these exist, they probably wouldn't be playing bass in that band. You know, yeah, they'd probably be doing or, or, they, or they would, but then they would have a different project yeah. or they would probably add more to the table than just like saying, totally. doing do, 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 do. Yeah. And so like that balance is like that impossible balance, right? Where like you're, <clears throat> you've got more than one sort of creative visionary, like, like in there, it, sometimes it can be a huge boon and like, you can get like really great products, but people sort of have to know where their strengths are and allow for places where their strengths are not to be filled by others because when when it's very easy for a dissonance to occur when people start overlapping and they don't agree about who should occupy that space and then you end up and this is probably going to be not the most popular take but like you end up with um a democratic approach and i feel like the democratic approach has no place in art so i think that like democracy leads to mediocrity particularly when it comes to the arts so i oh. don't love that approach i think that what happens is you've got idea a and you've got idea b maybe both of these are fucking awesome but just out of pure like social necessity you end up with some fucking amalgamation of a little bit of both and that typically isn't a great idea you know it's like yeah. it's like this rules over here this rules over there but like combining those things probably sucks. I, I really like that answer because like most people want to be uh, nice and they want to be, yeah, uh, they yeah. want to, <laughs> they, they, I had a band a few weeks ago on the podcast, they're called Molly Rhythm and they are like an eight piece, nine piece band. And uh, I could not tell you what kind of music they play because it's like very like, um, eclectic is that a yep. word in english yeah okay it is uh okay <laughs> and and it's very all over the place it's rock it's ska it's pop punk metal it's it's everything because they all have different like influences and i they w when they were on the podcast they were telling me that when they write songs they throw ideas and their rule in their band is to never say no to never like do a compromise of like and uh in the end, I feel like that's what it gives. Like it gives us a band that's like all over the place. And you're like, oh, wait, there's a nine minute song. And it's like, there's no chorus. There's no, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's exactly. no structures. And, uh, yeah. but that's what they do. So, but, but yeah. I like to hear a, a different opinion on, on this and how sometimes them, because there's a lot of bands that work like with the democratic approach yeah. where, yeah. all right, I've got this idea. He's got that idea. We're going to vote. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that sucks, but it's very common. I think a better approach is for there to be a strong creative leader, right? Who is a uh, who's a benevolent dictator who will like take like take 
all of this is how I try to operate. I'm sure you'll get varying reports on how well it went, but like I tried to like listen to like every idea that came in. Yeah, and definitely. a lot of times, a lot of times I was like, oh, that is dope. The only reason that doesn't fit with my concept is this. But what if we basically take all of that and like, can we do it this way? You know what I mean? And like the person's like, yeah, totally. And you're like, oh, and it really does make the product better. And I think mm -hmm. the, the reason for that is because it did flow through like that filter of like, because that person still has to protect the integrity of the emotional, uh, emotional translatability yep. of the thing they're trying to do. And like that thing, like that emotional translatability, like that just like, I think has to kind of come from one person and they can filter whatever the fuck they want through there as long as it fits that model. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Very like, interesting. Dude, I mean, I know like I've lost band members like more than one occasion because like I'm not like keeping the peace and, and, and yeah, and everyone thinks you're an asshole, but like it, I, we didn't, we're already friends. We can go to fucking dinner together. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not that we're here to like, uh, I'm here anyway to like make something really special. Yeah. Great. Um, yeah. How much space does creativity take in your job? Because when you're recording bands, what's I can't like what's the creativity aspect of recording bands? Well, it's um, when you're acting as like engineer and producer, you're um, very much trying to get inside the head. First of all, the first thing you're trying to do is you're trying to figure out if if you're if you're really with the band, I'll say you're trying to figure out who's who. Who occupies what space? Who's going to be a problem? Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you, so you're sort of surveying the landscape, kind of looking for where people's strengths lie, and sort of formulating your approach based on that. Also, like, um, I don't look. I want to keep myself removed as like I am a producer. I'm here to do my job as well as I possibly can. I need to understand you guys and understand. But like, one thing bands do to me all the time is like make me like the judge in a really awkward way where like I don't know that this guy fucking hates the bridge but everybody else likes the bridge and so then they go like what do you think of that bridge you know what I mean <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah and yeah mm -hmm. <laughs> and then so I'll uh, this is actually a real example I was like it's actually my favorite part of the song you know and then the guy who hates it goes really and I go yep Yeah. And he's like, he's like, you just don't think it like just stands out like out of nowhere. And I was like, that's why it's good. You know? <laughs> wow. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So like things like that can happen. So, but in terms of like creativity coming in, so you're getting creative with like how you're approaching the individuals. because ultimately mm -hmm. this is like a Congress of individuals trying to come to the best possible output, given the resources that they have in the room. Yeah. Uh, and I act as one of those resources. Um, so that happens. But when we're talking like, once I sort of ascertain that, then it's about leaning on my own creative vision, my own preferences and, and sort of like my sonic tool belt and all of like the cool widgets and gadgets I have to make sounds. Um, leaning on those and knowing those really, really well, right? Like the best painters, like, like the easel and the paints and the brushes, it's all fucking invisible to them, right? It's like, mm -hmm they know where to reach they know where to, how to mix they know how to do everything because they already know what color they want to show up on that canvas so like and they and they know 20 different ways to get that color but there's little different like preferential things about why you might get to that color in that way um it's the same thing with my job and it's figuring out like 
how to combine these elements to serve the product and serve the vision in a way that feels authentic, but modern and powerful and also like accessible to others. Cause if like what you're really trying to do is have this, like, if you're really trying to like penetrate like people with like this emotional translatability, then like you need to like deliver it in a form that like is ingestible to them. Um, and that's really important for me to know too, based on the genre, like, is this going to sound like a fucked up record or is this going to sound like a bring me to the horizon record? Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, who is this for? Um, so you have to be creative in that aspect. Um, I often think of this dude, Ken Levine, he was the head of a game studio that made a, a game called Bioshock. And, yeah. um, when he did Bioshock three, you know, he's into the story and he's, is in all this stuff, but he didn't really want it to be a first person shooter, but he knew it had to be a first person shooter. Otherwise no one's going to fucking play it. And then all of like the incredible story writing and all of the really smart concepts in this game, were going to, no one was going to play it. And it like, it wouldn't penetrate like the network of people that it possibly could because yeah. the packaging was wrong. Mm -hmm. So you have to be creative and knowing like that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Uh -huh. yeah. Um, my last question is how can you, how can you help people be more creative? Like what are the tips that you could give to someone to, uh, feel more creative? Well, you could take mushrooms. No. <laughs> All right. That's the best answer I've got. I love it. Um, micro dosing no. is actually good for creativity. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. Listen, there's a lot of shit. I've got friends who microdose like every day um that's not me but you know that's cool um but dude they swear by it they're just like I, i'm figuring things out you know it's like good congratulations um but uh well if i can plug some shit uh like we built a uh i i like i'm i'm one of the things i do in life is i'm like actively uh creating tools that hopefully empower people to be more creative like let's take mastering as an example yeah. um mastering is really hard to do it's taken me 16 years of trying to do it every day to become it's, good it's at an it. obscure it's very obscure to me mastering because every time i send my songs from the like from the rough mix to the mix last mixing phase i'm like oh shit i can hear the difference very well and then yeah. i send it to the master and the, i get the masters back and it feels like the volume is just a little bit up <laughs> like to me yeah, that's, that's a, well that's the old joke dude um yeah. It is more complex than that, but ultimately that's the one thing that's probably always true is that it, yes, it is louder. Um, so cool. Here's what's interesting about mastering is that to get that final mix to a place that is competitively loud, as you, what's the best metaphor for this? As you start to get like, uh, imagine there's an upper, well, there is an upper limit of volume. We consider that digital zero. You don't want everything to be at digital zero. Your peaks can be right below digital zero, but you don't want, everything to be digital zero because that's an unlistenable mess but <clears throat> as you start to basically like fill up what remains of possible volume every decision that you have made along the entire mixing process is getting compounded both from like dynamics and different frequency ranges to like peak and harmonic values to stereo width to like you name it so a really talented mastering engineer is going to know how to honor the mix but bring it up to that volume and not have it sound like a wet fart. And like, that is not easy to do. And that's why most mastering engineers are more experienced veterans in this industry who 
have been kicking around a while because it takes at least a decade to really develop the psychoacoustic skills required to be able to do that in a way that doesn't sound well, for lack of a better word, like shitty. Mm -hmm. So um, what I'm saying, so I took it one step further than that. And I started to realize and I educated myself on some biological things and this, things, well, not too nerdy, called the Fletcher Munson curves and like how the ear hears things at different volumes and at different average volumes versus peak volumes. One thing that's pretty consistent across humans is our biology, relatively speaking, right? Mm -hmm. But human hearing like operates as a near-ish constant. Everyone's a little different, but like the fundamental values of human hearing are like more or less the same human to human. And for that reason, uh, I will, I, I with in partnership with my, my um, partner in the company, Joe, we developed um, an artificial intelligence that masters uh, things really nicely in the cloud. And so the idea is, uh, it's called, it's a pun, it's called Master. It's my name, STR, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. master.io. And like, this is a platform that every artist can just like drop their creativity into and get a professional, like modern product back. And that's really empowering because now everyone who has a creative thought, but maybe doesn't want to spend a decade nerding out over psychoacoustics, but they have a fucking kick-ass chorus, right? They've got this great song idea and they don't want to have to email mastering engineer and be like, cool, he got back to me. Oh, it's mm -hmm. actually really expensive. Oh, I'm not going to get it back for two and a half weeks, yeah. right? Like what if it was like, oh, I dragged a file from one window to another and five minutes later, it roughly a little less than that, like, after Jay's fucking algorithm runs, like I have a viable product and not like not only is that just convenient and more cost effective, the other thing that it does is it enhances creativity so much because you can go get a coffee, right? Whatever, like stand up from your chair, make a sandwich, mm -hmm. come back, listen to the master with slightly fresh ears and go, oh, cool. This sounds so much better. But now that I hear it mastered and like how many times this has happened to like every band under the sun, they get the master back and then they're like, they're like, oh, this sounds way better. And then they're like, I just, now that I hear this, wish I could change that. But then they think about what an yeah. enormous pain in the ass it's about to be uh -huh. to re-email the mastering engineer, upload new revisions. Can you run uh -huh. these ones instead? They got to wait another two weeks. You know what I mean? It's like how much, how much does it cost? 50 bucks. Okay. Yeah. 50 bucks yeah, it's, 50, for... it's 50 bucks a month for literally unlimited use. Oh, okay, shit. Wow. So like, if you want to get your like record done, you just, you can subscribe for a month. If you want to keep going, if like you're somebody who's making art like often, then just keep your subscription up and running. Yeah. And oh. yeah, dude, beat up. I, we also I, added, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I, I was going to, I was going to say like, since it's the end of the podcast, I was going to ask you to plug if you have anything oh, to plug, yeah. but that's, that's <laughs> a good thing. One step ahead of you. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, any, so any other, any, any other things that you would like to, uh, people to not, check out? Yeah, not yeah. I would really like, yeah. I think people checking out Monster is what's up because it's, uh, I really think we're, we're really proud of it. And I really think it's going to be game changing for even professional engineers. I've got a bunch of professional engineers who are using the platform. Um, like Dan Corniff, like did like fucking Paramore and shit and Pierce the Veil and stuff. Like he likes it. Like uh, Bo from Sayosin likes it. Um, so those are homies that like it. But then like your average like dude who's like making music at home right? They just get like yeah. this crazy access. And that's what I was talking about. Like when we were talking about 
knowing how to penetrate the network of people with your creativity in like the grandest scale possible, knowing what the packaging of that product really needs to look like. That's like one of the fundamental reasons I was interested in doing something like this in the first place is because like I can take what I've figured out in my head, we can code it and then we can just ubiquitously like fucking everyone now has access to 15 years of 16 years, whatever it is of, mm-hmm. you know, education of daily, like getting better at this. That's now at the click of a button for them. Cool. Amazing. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for your time, Jay. Yeah, dude. And, um, and uh, yeah, it was very nice meeting you and talking to you. You as well, man. Cool. All right. Goodbye. Thanks,